everybody. Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and I want to thank you all for taking the time out today to tuning in to today's podcast. And as many of you know, I live in New York City, and coming up in the first weekend of November is the New York City Marathon. So now is the time that we start to see as healthcare workers, PTs, doctors, we start to see people coming in to see us with running-related injuries. And so I thought, perfect time to have a podcast all about the myths of running retraining. And to help me get through all those myths is Dr. Christian Barton. He is a physiotherapist who graduated with first-class honors from Charles Sturt University in 2005 and completed his PhD focusing on patellofemoral pain, biomechanics, and foot orthoses in 2010. Dr. Barton's broad research disciplines are biomechanics, running-related injury, knee pathology, tendinopathy, and rehabilitation with a particular focus on research translation. Dr. Barton has published over 40 papers in sports medicine, rehabilitation, and biomechanics, and is an associate editor for the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And he has also started uh, a great blog over at Latrobe University. Um, they have a Facebook group. They have a great blog. It's a great, great resource for anyone interested uh, in running or in uh, biomechanics, in sports-related injuries. And all of that, every single link is over at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com in the show notes. So if you're not taking notes right now, don't worry about it. You can go head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and all the links are in the show notes and I highly, highly suggest that you check all of those out. So what are we talking about in today's episode? Some of the myths are, is there an optimal foot strike pattern? Do traditional PT interventions have a place in running retraining programs? Uh, managing expectations on recovery timeframes. We also talk a little bit about the growth and wearable devices and how to use them in your practice and a lot more. So we bust a lot of myths here, and I really want to thank Dr. Barton for coming on and recording this great episode for everyone. Um, now, before we get to that episode, I have a quick, uh, quick update. The inaugural Women in PT Summit is happening, and it is happening November 4th, which is a Friday right here in New York City, and that weekend also happens to be the New York City Marathon weekend. So come in for the Women in PT Summit, stay for the marathon. It'll be a, such a fun weekend. It's a lot of energy in the city at that time, and it's really great. So if you want more information on that, you can go to womeninptsummit.com. Okay, I want to thank, I also want to thank uh, audible.com for sponsoring today's podcast. So if you want a free download and a free book, head on over to audibletrial.com slash healthy, wealthy, smart. You can choose from 180,000 different titles and start listening now. Okay, that being said, let's start listening now to today's podcast with Dr. Christian Barton. Hey, Christian, welcome to the podcast. Happy to have you on. Thanks very much for having me, Karen. Really looking forward to chatting to you about running. Yeah, yeah. And I'm looking forward to learning a lot more about running. So this is like the perfect fit. Um, so what we're going to talk about today are some common misconceptions that healthcare providers, maybe running coaches and runners themselves might have surrounding a running retraining program. 
So can you first explain even what that means? So what does running retraining mean and who needs that? Yeah, sure. So I guess running retraining is, is, is changing your running technique for prevent, potentially managing injuries and in some circumstances trying to improve performance. Now, the people who might need it are potentially injured runners who maybe have chronic and recurrent injuries, um, which is a lot of what I see in, in clinical practice. And often there's some technique issues where if we address them, we can have a really positive impact on their running-related pain. And I guess looking towards performance, everyone runs and, and people who run and take it very seriously are always striving for that personal best time. And um, we'll talk more about this later, I'm sure, as part of the podcast, but you can certainly look towards doing running technique changes or running retraining to try and improve performance. And I think you get your best results when you can try and marry those two things together around injury management, but also improving performance. So technique changes could be driven by a therapist, like a physical therapist or physiotherapist. Often running coaches are very good at this, but also see some problems in terms of running coaches trying to change running technique to potentially help with performance. And we can talk about some myths around what often gets attempted shortly, but that can sometimes lead to injuries as well. So it shouldn't be changed with, without serious consideration about the implications to, to, our, to our musculoskeletal system. And so it's not necessarily the runner that has an injury that Not might always. seek out a running retraining program? No, I think um, I think a lot of runners will consult with, with running coaches, especially in the sub-elite and, and elite setting where they're trying to improve their, their actual performance. And, and even in a, in a novice runner, often running coaches will give guidance around running technique. A common one that we see, which I think is, is starting to die off a little bit in terms of myth, but it's certainly still out there. I see a lot of injuries as a result of, and that is people converting their strike pattern, so going from a heel strike to a, a forefoot or midfoot strike pattern, and there was a. There's been a lot of hype around the barefoot running concept, and so, and the so fact basically they read "Born to Run" yeah. and said, yeah. "I'm going to go barefoot run." Yeah, and uh, but not all, not always barefoot. Sometimes they'll still leave their shoes on, and they they try and take the barefoot form, so to mm -hmm. speak. Um, and they might the runner may not have read "Born to Run," but their running coach has, or their friend has, or someone else has, and it almost becomes fanatical for some people to try and change their strike pattern with the thought that if we do that, then we possibly have less injuries. We don't have great evidence for that, and also that we actually improve performance. And the research evidence around performance in changing strike pattern is actually really interesting. And that is that if you have a, a, a sub-elite or, or a novice runner convert their strike pattern from a, a heel strike to a, a forefoot strike, actually it'll either maybe not change their running economy or in many cases it actually has a detrimental effect to their running economy. So performance, at least in the short term, takes a hit if you try and change your strike pattern. And the other key thing with that is if you change to a forefoot strike, you've now got a lot more load through tissues in your body that you normally don't have load and that can include your your forefoot so bones in your forefoot such as your metatarsals and that can lead to stress fractures in in some circumstances you're getting more load on your achilles and, and plantar fascia and potentially calf so you can actually cause injuries by doing this but you know i think the myth surrounding that sort of forefoot to to heels forefoot strike versus heel strike is that you know, if you're striking at your heel, it's just sending up so much more ground forces up through your body. I mean, I think that's the myth. I think that's what people think, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so what what can you talk about that as far as what does the research show, and and is this is this something that everybody should be doing? Everybody needs to change. 
Yeah. So the, the common thing that people look at in terms of research, we talk about biomechanics for a second, is a, is a variable that we call vertical ground reaction force. And that's the force that comes straight up from the ground. And when we go from a, a heel strike to a forefoot strike, um, in some circumstances, that actually reduces the, the rate of that impact. So it actually reduces our impacts. And that's a force that's coming straight up. What's interesting is that doesn't actually happen in all individuals. So when you look at these studies, in fact, what you see is in some people, when they go from a heel strike to a forefoot strike, those forces can actually go up. So as a trend, they do go down, but in some people, they'll actually go up. And I think that has a lot to do with not so much what our strike pattern is, but where our foot lands relative to our center of mass. So if we land a long way out in front of our body, then that means we end up with higher impact forces. And if we land closer to our body, we end up with lower impact forces. What people commonly do when they change their strike pattern is they'll actually shift their foot closer under their hips and therefore you get lower impact forces as a result of that. And I think that's one of the key reasons we get it. The other key thing about impacts is it's not just the forces that come straight up in the air, so coming from the ground to the sky, but we also need to think about the forces that come from in front of us to behind us. And when we change from a heel strike to a forefoot strike, and we did a big review on the literature here, what it also shows us is that we actually get an increase in forces going backwards, so what we call a braking force. So I think what we need to focus on with running technique isn't so much the strike pattern, but more so where our foot lands relative to our, our hips or our center of mass. And often what we see is that that has a, a relationship with strike pattern. So someone may hit the ground really heavy with their heels, and we use running retraining to shift their foot closer under their hips. In some circumstances, that leads to a much softer heel strike or sometimes a midfoot strike or sometimes a forefoot strike. So I think allowing that person to adapt their strike pattern depending where they're landing is probably the more sensible way of doing it. Right, and then that brings me to, I think, another common myth is that if someone is having pain with running, whether it be knee pain, hip pain, um, all you have to do is shorten the stride length and you'll be fine. Shorten the stride length, pick up the cadence, and you're fine. So, yeah. so you know, what is your your uh, response to that? Yeah, so there's a, a few things around that, and I think it's certainly, out of all the running or training options that can be used by running coaches and therapists, it's probably the safest one that we have, and that is picking up your step rate and increasing, increasing cadence. You have some runners who already have a high cadence, though, and in that case, it may not help. Additionally, in, in a few runners, and it's not that common, you actually see that when you increase their step rate, at least in the short term, can actually lead to higher impacts. And you've only got to listen to a runner when you do that. And I suspect these are the runners who maybe don't have the strength and power to, to increase their step rate. So it's not a, not a caveat and not the, the one size fits all. It would be like just prescribing one exercise and, and that's going to fix every injury. It needs to be thought a little bit more. If you look at the literature um, around this, we did a systematic review on this topic looking at well, what studies are out there on running retraining. And of 46 studies that we identified, this was about 12 months ago, 19 of them actually related to step rate and 15 of them related to strike pattern. So that shows you the emphasis that researchers currently have in this area. But there's so many other things that we can try and improve to improve our load attenuation. So we can look at pelvic stability and control. We can look at how stiff someone runs, so making sure that they're not bending too much through their knee and through their ankle and things like that. And sometimes step rate has a positive influence on these things, um, but often it's it's not going to have a big impact on these other things. So it's not the be-all and end-all. There's a lot of other things we need to think about beyond beyond step rate. But 
if you're just diving into doing some running or training and, and thinking about changing things, it's certainly probably one of the safer ones we can try because it can, in some cases, be very effective at reducing the overstride that we talked about before, particularly if someone has a step rate sitting, say, around 150 steps per minute, then that's very low. There's this magical rule of 180. I don't think it's so magical. Um, certainly a more elite runner has a higher step rate and it's something we can work towards, but you don't have to run at 180 steps per minute. But if you've got a runner in front of you who's got an injury and they're running 150 or 155 steps per minute, that makes logical sense. You might increase it a little bit, but I'd be considering other things as well. Yeah, and you beat me to it. That was my next question is what's the magic number? <laughs> yeah, so I don't think there is a magic number. Look, if we're talking about injury, the magic number, if we're going to increase step rate, is is how much increase we need in order to get someone running pain-free again. So let's say they're running 150 steps per minute, we increase them to 160, and that allows them to run without their knee pain anymore, then that's probably the magical number for that individual. In terms of performance, we certainly know that um, a more elite runner has a much higher step rate. Now, we don't have any research to say that if we increase someone's step rate that we're going to improve their performance, but that's something certainly be worth looking at in the future. But if we've got a higher step rate, we tend to have a shorter contact time with our foot on the ground, which means that we're able to propel a lot further. Um, and as a result of that, we can run faster. So I think if you're worried about performance, it's something that you probably want to continue to work on. Now, you don't have to run at exactly 180, and people will change their step rate through a run. So they may start off at a step rate of 180. As they get fatigued, they actually don't have the muscle capacity to do that anymore, and their, their step rate by the end of, say, a marathon may drop to 170, 175, and that's a normal thing to see. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, as the especially when you're talking about a marathon runner, I mean, it's 26.2 miles, the body fatigues. Yeah. Elite yeah. runner or not an elite runner, right? The body is going to fatigue. And mm. so you are certainly going, I think your, your cadence and, and your form, I would assume, may, maybe in an elite runner it doesn't. But certainly, I mean, I ran the Chicago Marathon. And I yeah. have to tell you, I ran with like the regular folks. And boy, did you see a difference in form from the beginning to the end. I, in myself, I saw a huge difference in form. Yeah. So, no, it's, you and, still and see would, changes in form. Yeah, in late and, and I, oh, do you? Yeah. And, and I would think for, for the average person, because, you know, a lot of maybe, let's say you're a physical therapist, you're, you're a running coach, and you're listening to this podcast, the majority of people are not training elite athletes. No, I think correct. we can safely say that, right? Yeah, so correct. I think it's important if you are training, let's say your average Joe to run a marathon, whether it be their first marathon or their fourth, fifth, whatever marathon, multiple marathon, I think it's important to communicate with them that, listen, by the end, things are going to look a little different than they are in the beginning and, that, and that's okay. Yeah, and that's a that's a really important point. And with a lot of the the running retraining stuff that I do clinically, is as people get better, they can run shorter distances really well, and they feel comfortable, and they they've got no pain. But as they get to longer distances, they may be training for a marathon, their form starts to struggle a little bit, and sometimes their their pain can begin to return. So they might have traditionally had anterior knee pain or patellofemoral pain after five or ten kilometers of running. They've worked really hard with their rehab and and some things with their running technique, and and now they can run thirty kilometers before their, their pain comes on and they're not thinking about their running by this stage because they've naturally habituated to what we've asked them to do. But at that point, maybe they can then focus on something around increasing their step rate or, or a cue around their pelvis or, or proximal cue that we use and that's able 
able to reduce their pain. So I think when you're doing running retraining, it's not trying to dictate the way someone runs for an entire run, but it's giving them options that they can use throughout that run and, and try things. And, and often, though, if they do try these things, they can find a happy, happy ground where they can run pain-free again. Yeah, and I think that's a really great point. I'm glad that you said that you brought that up, and and I think that that will give clinicians listening to this um, some ideas for their running retraining program. Um, yeah. Okay, so talking about clinicians, so let's say you're a physiotherapist or a manual therapist, and and you're working with a patient or a client in a running retraining program. Uh, I think another sort of common misconception is that all you have to do is just work on their running. Just work on the yeah. form, work on the running, and 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 that's it. So yeah. can you speak to kind of where does the the therax, the manual therapy, the uh, more traditional rehab modalities come into play? Yeah, sure. I think um, if you've got someone in acute pain, anything you can do to get them out of that pain is going to be incredibly powerful. Now, whether that's education around activities that they should be avoiding, maybe excessive running and training load, which at the end of the day is the most important thing, whether that's education around other things they might be doing that's irritating their knee or their Achilles, I think that's really important. Manual therapy, there's many, many manual therapy techniques that can be incredibly effective at short-term pain reduction. And I think it's making sure the patient understands that what you're doing with that is giving you a window of opportunity that you can then work on your rehab and, and work on your running technique and form and things like that. So I think if you've got manual therapy techniques, that you're skilled at doing and confident at doing as a clinician and you can get someone out of pain, then I think they're still very valuable. They're not going to fix the runner in the long term, though, if they've got a chronic problem because inevitably they're going to go back to maybe their training errors or, or overloading tissues. And the, the, I guess the other probably key, key thing or the most important thing to do concurrently with running or training is also thinking about your exercise rehabilitation. If you've got a runner who's had pain for a significant period of time, they're going to have developed maladaptive behaviors and that might be related to their running technique. If they've got anterior knee pain, for example, they, we know that they're going to have been walking on stairs with less knee flexion. They'll be walking with less knee flexion. They'll be avoiding doing things like squatting. As a result of that, we get deconditioning of various muscle groups. So we know that we get quadriceps muscle weakness and gluteal muscle weakness. And unless we address those things concurrently, it makes it very hard for us to, for example, get someone to improve their hip control with knee pain if they don't have the gluteal muscle function to do that. And I think if you want to get them there faster, then I think it's really important to potentially address those those strength deficits or endurance muscle deficits as, as part of that program. So I think... If you did running or training in isolation, you might get there eventually, um, but I think it would take you a very, very long time. And if there's significant, significant deficits in muscle function, I'm not convinced you'd actually ever get there for that individual. I think you need to bring bring these things in together. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, it's. I think. I mean, I don't know what the physical therapy or physiotherapy programming is like in Australia, but sometimes in the United States. Um, people are dictated, unfortunately, by their insurance. So they may only be approved for eight visits. Yep. You know, so when you have someone who's only approved for eight visits, how do you structure a program to send them off so that you don't see them again in like two or three weeks because they're coming back with the same issues? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Is there yeah, a no, way no, to exactly. kind of incorporate I all of this 
And eight visits, listen, eight visits could be spread out over three months. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a, it's a real challenge and I, I did deal with this challenge when I worked in London for a few years and the common thing there was actually six visits with the health insurance companies um, and to get more was very hard. And I think one of the there's – there's a couple of issues around that. One is that when you're doing, say, running retraining with someone, if you send them off with cues to work on, the last thing you want to send them off to do is the first time, especially if it's something that's not something simple like step rate, if it's something around proximal control or, or pelvic position, send them off for three or four weeks without any reassessment because who knows what they may do. They could do all sorts of weird things. We know what patients do with exercise, right? You give them an exercise. Sometimes even when you video their exercises, they still come back doing very strange things and yes. this, exactly the same thing happens for running. The problem is they might be running with a really funky technique for 10, 15 kilometers as a result of that. So tend to try and follow someone up within a week the first time you see them. Um, the challenging part from there is then what do you do with your remaining session because that's two gone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully that you've got a patient who, who has some good understanding of, of what you're trying to do and I think the education side of things is really important. If you're finding manual therapy techniques are helping that individual, find a way that they can do some similar things at home. So what can they do themselves at home to do self-mobilization? What stretching work can they do? Can they do some foam rolling or, or something along those lines to, to replicate what you've been doing? So you can spend more time focusing on their exercise rehabilitation and, and, and their running technique. Once I've got a patient more stable in terms of where they're headed with their running technique and, and their exercise rehab, you actually don't need to see them for three or four weeks at a time because they need time to go and work at all of those things. So I think if you can spread those out over the space of quite a few months, you can certainly have a big impact because in a chronic injury, you're not going to get someone better in three months even. Um, it's not going to work that way. It's actually probably going to take them closer to 12 months or, or 18 months to address their muscle function deficits that have developed as a result of the injury. Sometimes they're running technique stuff. If it's simple, can be quite quick, but in many chronic cases, it might take them quite a few months, maybe three or four months to address the technique issues that you're trying to address to reduce stress on the tissue. So um, I'm not sure how long the eight visits are in the US, if you can extend them over more than three months, but I'd certainly yeah, encourage that. I, we used I think to have, it depends. Yeah, we had issues in, in London around the time frame that it had to be used in. Yeah, and yeah. on some occasions, you'd write a nice letter to the insurance company and they would let them come in for a bit longer. Um, other occasions, you know what, the patient would get 70% of the way there. They could see you know, you've educated them about how long it's going to take them. They'd pay for a few more sessions themselves out of their own pocket just to come back and, and make sure they follow through of it. And I guess one thing with most runners is they're incredibly motivated. Um, they spend a lot of money on footwear, um, spending lots of money on devices like Garmin's and things like that. And if you're giving them value in terms of their running and giving them great guidance with their rehab and great guidance with their running technique, and they can see that after a few months, they'll probably pay for another couple of sessions to follow up and keep progressing things. Yeah, that's true. I think once they, once people see the value in anything, they're more willing to separate money from their pocket in order to continue mm. on and, and get them to where they need to be. Now, you had mentioned uh, there how long it takes. So yeah. how important is it? And, and obviously we know to say, okay, how long does it take to, set, to get somebody better? Yeah. We know that that's highly variable um, yeah. depending on the person and the motivation and the injury, the chronicity, the acuteness, what have you. But how important is it when you first see that patient to explain to them 
a projected time frame? And is that something that you do? Oh, for sure. And I think this is something when I teach my courses, I always talk to people. One of the questions I ask at the start of the course is the last couple of patients you saw on Friday or whenever it was, how long did you tell them it was going to take them to get better or do their rehab? And it's really interesting. Not many clinicians will have told them how long it's going to take. But if you tell them that first day that, look, it's going to take you 12 months to, to get this right, that's incredibly important. But at the same time, don't just give them that time frame. You want to give them goals along the way. So in, in one month, we're going to have you back to running three or four kilometers and you're going to be doing that pain-free, all going well. In in three months, you're going to be back to your 10 kilometers. In, in six months, you're going to be back to being able to train properly for your marathon and all going well, you're going to be running marathons quite happy and comfortably in 12 months' time. So I think that's really, really important because if you tell a patient we're going to do X, Y, and Z and don't tell them how long it's going to take, they'll leave your consult room and in their head, they'll probably think it's going to take them a few weeks and they'll exactly. be back training for the marathon and, and back to it. So I think that's a the communication side of things is incredibly important. And with the, the running side of things, when you're giving them, I guess, running retraining cues and things like that, I... I can just watch someone run these days. I've done this so for so long. I don't need video for many people to slow it down and look at. I can pick it up in real time, which takes a long time to develop. But I use the video every single time, and the pure reason is to educate the patient about what they need to change. And then you can then talk to them about, well, look, we want to improve your your knee drive, or we want to improve your hip extension, and there's some barriers here for, for preventing us doing that, and that might be their, their strength and function of their proximal musculature, like their gluteals and, and their core. And it's going to take us three or four months to, to address them to enough of a level that we can we can make those changes. So they've got to have as enough, enough of an understanding about why those time, time frames exist as well. I think that's really important. Yeah, and, and I would think, I'm glad that you mentioned, okay, this may take 12 months, but let's break this down into goals, into more short-term goals. Because I can imagine a very motivated runner coming in and you say, yeah, we'll, we're going to get you back in about 12 months. They'll say, see ya, because there's a PT who said he can get me back in six weeks. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? And, and so it, have you ever encountered something like that? And if you do, what do you say to this person who really, really wants – because sometimes so, – so for instance, the New York City Marathon is the first weekend in November. Yeah. So people have started training already. Right. So sometimes I'll see someone in September yeah. and they're running this marathon. Yeah. They've yeah. signed up. They got the lottery. They're going in. You know, yeah. they're not unless they are like really, really disabled. They're not going to do like it. Broken leg style things. Exactly. Going. Exactly. So what how do you deal with that patient? Because I feel like every every PT who's in an or outpatient ortho clinic is going to see this person at some point in time. Yeah. You know, so I guess, you're not talking about your elite runner. You're talking about the person yeah. who got in and they're, they're doing it. Yeah. See, see them a lot. Um, so I, I think it's talking to them about realistic goals and I guess getting an understanding for them, well, what are their goals of what they want to do? And if their main goal is to get to that marathon, then we need to do everything possible to do that. Um, we need to come up with taping techniques that are going to help them. We need to come up with, with short-term exercise gains that we think we can get. And maybe that's where manual therapy can make a big difference in the short term. And But also talking to them that, look, 
we might get you to the start and the finish line of this marathon. You may still have some pain during it. Um, and if you're willing to accept that, that's fine. But you need to understand that that pain is going to possibly cause you to have maladaptive running patterns and, and possibly cause you some harm to your longer-term prognosis. Um, so, it's, But if that's what's something that's really important to you, then I'm happy to work with you to do that. And beyond that, I'd recommend that let's – set another goal of, of another race that you want to do but let's set it with a realistic time frame maybe it's six months or 12 months after that and let's strip your running back and, and let's kind of not start again but let's really rebuild what you're doing in terms of a strength conditioning program try and rebuild some things around your running technique and, and look at it post the marathon so you might change a few subtle things running technique wise in the lead up to the marathon that's where something like step break can be really simple and really easy um, doesn't take a lot to change you might change or give them some options temporary. So I talked about strike pattern at the beginning. I had a marathon runner in London who did the entire marathon switching his strike pattern every kilometer. So it's exactly what you talked about is I saw him a couple of months out. We did a few simple little things and we did some exercise and some manual therapy. I taught him some taping and his knee was much better but still wasn't there. It would still build up with pain and unless he went to a four-foot strike. Now, he didn't have capacity to do a four-foot strike for an entire marathon. At least that was my perception because if you watched him hop and jump and things like that, his ability to absorb load wasn't great. But I was happy that if we switched between the two and, and didn't overload that calf too much, that, that gave him some options to reduce the load on his knee. And he tried running further with a four-foot strike and he'd end up with a really, really tight and sore calf. Um, so he just, he, in the end, he, it was his idea. He said, I'll just swap every kilometer. <laughs> um, and he did it and did the marathon. So I think it's, it's it just have to, yeah, yeah. You, you have to talk to your patient. It's about a shared decision process. I don't think we get to dictate to every patient exactly what they need to do. We need to ask them that question at the beginning. What's, what's the most important thing for you moving forwards? Um, and is there a short term goal that you really, really want to want to get to? Or well, some people do you do you want any decision in what your care is? And some people will say, no, you tell me what to do um, and I'll do it. I'll, I'll pull out of the marathon if you think that's sensible. Um, they're obviously easier, but at the end of the day, we've yes, got to give them are. patient. Yeah. It's about patient choice um, and working with them to, to, to their goals. And, you know, you had mentioned a couple of times the – about the forefoot strike and the effect on the calf or the Achilles. So can you just expand upon that a little bit, um, just so people, because yes. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, if you're having Achilles pain, you go to a forefoot strike, that would be better because you're yeah. not putting the stretch onto, I'm air quoting, the stretch onto the Achilles tendon. Um, so could you talk about, uh, quickly before we move on to our next misconception, just talk a little bit about that so that the, the listeners kind of yeah. understand the research and the reasoning. Yeah, so no, strike pattern's a great topic to chat about and certainly a big passion of mine. And I think if you what we know very clearly from, from research is that if you change your strike pattern, you can have a positive effect on, on some injuries. So anterior compartment syndrome, for example, so anterior shin splints, which continue to increase in pain until you stop running. Um, that's a really common one where if you can get someone off their heels more to a forefoot, midfoot strike, then that's an incredibly powerful intervention. And, and that's been shown in a couple of great uh, case series. We don't have any RCT evidence yet, but it's certainly mounting in terms of, of research evidence. The other population that has been researched in is patellofemoral pain. And there was a paper published recently by Roper. There was a small sample, so two groups of eight in a randomized trial. And it 
showed, again, better outcomes in the group who did four-foot strike compared to a group who just gradually built up their running. Now, what's interesting about that, and this probably highlights the key point, is in their study, they actually report that there was no significant detrimental effects of the program. Yet, if you continue to read through their paper, they report at one-month follow-up that actually two of their eight participants had ankle pain during running, which subsided not long after ceasing running. Now that sounds a lot like patellofemoral pain at the beginning for some people one month into the condition. They have anterior knee pain during running, which subsides quickly after running. So what we've got to be really careful of is when we just change strike pattern and nothing else, we've actually shifted load to another area. What we see biomechanically is we do get more loads on our foot and ankle, so there's more requirements for energy absorption there. Um, and we do see higher EMG activation of both gastrox and cilia, so those muscles are working harder. We've got higher stress on our, our metatarsals. So in time, if it's done really sensibly, I think it can it can work. It can work really well, and I do use it in, in some patients as a retraining intervention. But should it be done in isolation? Definitely not. If you do it without addressing any overstride, it can significantly increase those stresses we talked about. If you address overstride and change strike pattern, then it can be quite a good intervention as long as you're sensible and, and habituate to it over time. The performance side of things is is really interesting and I, I look at this literature a lot and, and a lot of running coaches will promote people to change their strike pattern to improve their performance and actually as I mentioned before it actually has a detrimental effect in novice runners. For me I think one of the reasons people go and shift their strike pattern is when they're more elite is they're actually absorbing more loads so they need to need to do that. So at some point of speed and impact we can't actually run on our heels anymore. So it's possibly more efficient at slower speeds and there's limited evidence to suggest that but as we run faster you actually can't run on your heels anymore because you need that extra shock absorption from your calf and Achilles and those structures that we talked about that puts more load on. You need them to actually play a part in, mm -hmm. in load absorption on impact. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. It kind of reminds me I did an interview a couple of weeks ago with Claire Hiller at the University of Sydney about dance uh, dance medicine and it, it this kind of reminds me of how she goes about her pre-point assessments so when she's gonna put somebody up on point because it's a whole different ball game you know it's a lot of you just have to be wary of the stability around the ankle and the calf strength and and things like that and and mm. this this is similar to that, you know, so if you change someone's uh, strike pattern and all of a sudden they are a heel strike and going to that forefoot strike and they're having ankle pain, is could that be a little bit of like almost an ankle sprain or like a having some, uh, I don't want to, not, not some instability issues around the ankle. Yeah. yeah, the common one you'll see if it's ankle pain will be medial ankle pain. Um, and that can be some tib post tendon irritation, or if it's lateral ankle pain, it's often perineal tendon irritation. So both of those two injuries can actually become a really problematic injury if we're not careful with it. So if, you, if you're converting strike pattern from rear foot to forefoot and you, you're getting those symptoms, you probably need to back off how much of it you're doing. It may still be a sensible thing to do for that individual. They may have a really chronic degenerative knee that you want to shift some load away from or the compartment syndrome. So you may want to do it in time, but you may need to be a bit more patient about how quickly you do that. Um, and then thinking about footwear and things like that as well, which might help. Um, certainly if you're trying to change strike pattern, going to a more minimalist footwear approach is, is certainly very helpful. It's very hard to convert your strike pattern in a big bulky motion control shoe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
and and you know, foot, I think we could probably spend an entire episode talking about. Yeah, I, we 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 won't dive into that. Yeah, whole yeah, that that's just a now. whole other beast, you know. Um, so you mentioned a little bit earlier that uh, sometimes you'll video people. Sometimes you don't have to. You've been doing this for a long time. You kind of catch it with the naked eye. But I think another misconception is that you need to have a lot of equipment. This 3D motion capture, you need to have cameras at every angle in order to get a really good running assessment on your client. So, true or false? Uh, in almost all circumstances, false. Um, I think when I'm doing running retraining, this is something I've learned more from experience over the years, is the safest way to change someone is to look at the sagittal plane. Um, so if we think about what dictates the highest forces for us, it's, it's depending on sagittal plane mechanics. So the overstride is going to have a big impact. Our knee position in terms of flexion extension on landing will have a big impact. Our pelvic position in the sagittal plane will have a big impact on our ability to engage gluteal muscles and lower abdominal muscles, etc. on impact. So if we change some of those sagittal plane things, then that will usually lead to any changes that we need to make in terms of frontal transverse plane. So if we reduce overstride and improve knee mechanics and hip mechanics, that will reduce foot pronation. That will reduce how much knee valgus and hip adduction internal rotation we get. So if we think about that as a concept, then actually you can get incredibly reliable data from 2D motion analysis. Um, in fact, using a camera is really not not any different to using 3D motion analysis in terms of accuracy. It's very, very similar. Um, if we're talking about frontal and transverse plane mechanics, we probably can't get as much, I guess, insight into that from using 2D. But in frontal plane, thinking about things like hip adduction and rear foot eversion, you can actually pick up that really, really well. Now, we live in a great era now where we've got fantastic cameras just on our smartphones. So those people who are Apple out there, you've got a you've got a camera on your phone that's actually 120 frames per second, which is incredibly high. That's actually incredibly high. Unfortunately, Android, and I'm not an Apple person, but Android has a phone camera that sits around about 30 frames per second, but I have no doubt within the next year or two that that's going to up as well. And if we talk about well, how many frames per second do you need from a camera, it really depends a little bit on speed. But for most runners, I think, 30 is the absolute, absolute minimum for, for a slower novice type runner, but ideally you're probably looking more towards 50. Once you're getting up to around the 15 kilometer an hour mark, you're probably looking to, to increase that maybe up towards 100. So I commonly use 50 frames per second, and that's purely because it keeps the file size lower. I might increase the, the frames per second for a faster runner on some occasions. Um, you've got free programs that you can use on your smartphones as well. So uh, traditionally called Ubersense but now called Huddle is a, is a free program um, which you can use. You can pay a subscription which is not a huge amount each year and you can actually store all of your videos in the cloud um, which is very useful and you can use that tool to go through slow motion analysis for yourself so you can do your own assessment but also to teach the patient and that's what's really important. You can draw lines on those videos and, and measure angles and, and look at a range of different things that you can often is used for 3D motion analysis, but actually it's probably good enough for, for most runners. Um, if you're using a, a PC, there's a really, really good program called, sorry, called Canovia, um, which is, again, a free program you can download, and that's what I tend to use. It's a little bit cleaner and it's got a little bit more functionality than Huddle, but 
um, it, it allows you to maybe use a, a slightly better camera to what's on your phone. So I have a camera which is not an expensive camera, it costs about 800 Australian dollars. Um, so if you're what, doing what a lot of rightness, to, to US, 800. Uh, so to US, it's probably sitting around 600 at the moment. Okay. Yeah, so it's not in, and if we talk about pounds, you might have some UK listeners, and we're probably sitting around 350 pounds, mm -hmm. 400 pounds. So, uh, exchange rate keeps changing, right? I keep a Brexit. After, after Brexit, after what have you Brexit. done, you English people? What have you Holy done? Holy cow, they plummeted. The pound plummeted. Yeah, I know. I've, I've, been, I've got a British passport, so I've been kicked out of the Euro thanks to Brexit. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, oh. disappointing. That's okay. That's okay. Um, but yeah, so it's not hugely expensive and that, that camera actually allows me to do up to 250 frames per second, so for higher resolution. So I think on the, the, the limitation for, for doing video is that you probably you can't get things like impact forces so very well. So if you go into a gate laboratory, you can use force plates and you can get ground reaction forces and, and kinetics and, and things like that. So you're probably limited there. But from a kinematics or the motion we can see, I really don't see too many limitations with what we have available to us compared to 3D. I looked into setting it up when we set up our clinic in Melbourne, setting up a 3D motion analysis because I could and I've, I've used that technology before and in the end I decided it was going to take me too long to collect data for each patient um, and the cost just wasn't worth it. Um, probably the only advantage is it looks sexy for the patient so they think it's maybe better but in reality it's probably not going to help us that much more. Right, right. Yeah, the clinical another, reasoning is more important. Yeah, absolutely and there's another free program Coach's Eye. Have you heard of Coach's Eye? Yeah, Coach's Eye is a very good one. So I think traditionally that was a paid program. Is that free now? It is a paid program. I think it's like I think I paid like I don't know five ninety nine or six ninety nine for it. I don't know. My dad yeah. told me about it. Um, yeah, my dad's, coach is awesome. Yeah, my dad's a pitching coach, so yeah. he uses it a lot with the with the girls that he coaches for softball. Yeah. Um, so I've been using that for a couple of years, and and I like it. I I mean I use it for everything from running to my golf clients to softball to whatever you know. But yeah. it, it's great because you don't need to carry like I see patients in their homes. Yeah. So what I can't carry around all this stuff with me, you know. So it's great and so convenient that it's everything's right in the phone now. Even my even my camera fits in and my tripod fits in my satchel bag with nice. my laptop. Nice. So I can carry that around anywhere. I take that all around the world when I teach courses and I use the same setup that I have in my clinic I use in in London, I use it in Stockholm, I use it in in Denmark, wherever I go, I could just take the same stuff. Yeah, so it's, the technology is so portable and so easy now. I mean, I even have I have a portable force plate. Yeah, yeah. That I carry around with me sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we we got one for our clinic recently. We're doing some Achilles trials at the moment. Nice, nice. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty cool actually. Yeah, pretty, yeah. I have one from Body uh, Body Tracks. Um, yeah. And it's it's pretty great. It rolls up like or Body Track. Sorry, it rolls up like a yoga mat. Okay. And yep. then I carry it around, I take it to patients, I throw it down, and I can at least get, you know, a little more, a little more data. And it's so, I have to say, it's so sensitive, it's great. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Like, I have, like, a 16-pound cat who you've seen coming in. So for people yep. who are listening, we're doing this via Skype, and I have just was, like, attacked by my cat about five minutes ago. He keeps going back and forth across the screen, but even... You know, this 16-pound cat goes on this force plate, and it's amazing how yeah. precise they are. So the technology is there if you want to yeah. if you want to go for it. And I think what's really cool around technology is if we think back to what we had 10 years ago, 
to what we have now. Um, it's been pretty amazing developments and I'm pretty excited to see what happens in the next five or ten years. We're working with um, a, a company who are developing pods that go on shoe where you can measure cadence like you can with Garmin and things like that but they can also get a measure of impact forces. Nice. Um, so we're doing some validation work with that at the moment so it's called Milestone Foot Pod and they, yeah, they're the potential for those is really cool because that kind of gives us some indication about impacts, which I just talked about as one of the limitations of video. We can't get that. But I think in the not-too-distant future, a recreational runner will be able to go out for a run, put these put these things on their shoes, and they'll be able to come back, back to their clinician, give them the data, and the clinician can look and go, well, yep, for your first five kilometers you run, it looked good, and actually the last three or four kilometers your impacts went up, and they went up through the roof. So they're probably junk miles. We might need to back off how far you're running, or maybe you need to work on your running retraining through that period of time rather than the first five kilometers. So I think we're going to have some some really cool technology coming out more. So I think just keep your eyes out on social media and on, yeah, just stuff that's coming out. And I think you'll, you'll keep getting better and better stuff. Yeah, and, and I think it's important, and, and you mentioned this uh, sort of in passing earlier, was that, yes, with all this technology that we have, boy, it sure does make our jobs a little bit easier, but it doesn't replace the clinical reasoning and no. the interpretation of the data that you're getting, right? No. No, definitely not. Definitely not. That's and that's the incredibly important part is that it's just a great facilitator and a great way of measuring things um, and looking at it. And I think, as well as I said, it's educating the patient as well. So it's not only your analysis, but it's also your ability to educate the patient of what's going on and outcome measures. Right. So if we can measure some of these things, and with the running or training side of things, we can watch someone run, video them. They feel like they're running normal. They feel like they're running well. You change their mechanics for the better to reduce the stress on their knee or their Achilles or their hip and they feel like they're running really weird and they tell you they think they're running weird. You show them the video and they actually look at it and they go, actually, that looks better even though I feel really weird and that gets a buy-in from that. You can then show them in a few months' time. You video them again when they're not thinking about their running technique and they've been working at it and you look at their, their running and it, it's looking much better than the original one so they can see that they've actually the effort they've put in and have improved as a result of that then their pain's got better as well so it allows them to continue to buy in and, and continue to work at the stuff you're trying to get them to work on. Yeah, absolutely. And now before we kind of start to wrap things up, is, is there any – so you know, you're a researcher. Are, is there any new research coming down the pipe that you kind of coming down the pipeline that you kind of want to talk about or any new research that maybe recently came out uh, as it uh, pertains to running any exciting things yeah I think with, with the with the running and training stuff we've talked about um, this is something where I need to maybe do a bit more research a lot of the stuff that's being done now there's a few more clinical trials and, and randomized trial to talk about the Roper study before changing strike pattern which is a great addition to the literature so we're seeing a few more RCTs a lot of those RCTs are more simple interventions like step rate which we've talked about um, and it's really hard to, to measure the more complexities about what we can do with running or training because at the end of the day we're going to give individual response so I think from a retraining perspective, we'll hopefully see some more randomized controlled trial evidence coming out. But most of what's there is probably in the paper that I public, we published in British Journal of Sports Medicine recently, which where we got a whole bunch of experts in the area together and we interviewed them separately and we put all of that information together along with the evidence to give a bit of guide. So if you haven't read that paper and you're interested in the topic, certainly have a read. It is a novel. It's about 6,000 words, but hopefully it'll be an enjoyable read. 
Um, for me, it's probably research that we're looking at now is is looking at not only the the detriments of running and running injuries, but what are the benefits of running in in relation to that. So we're starting to to look a little bit more now about if we get someone running, get them off the couch and, and get them out there and running, do they have health benefits? Because if we're going to get them running, then we want to see that that's the case and we suspect that would be the case. Um, but also, which runners maybe get injured as a result of starting to do that and can we predict those who will get the health benefits versus those who will get the injuries? And it might be that we need other interventions like a strength program as part of that and I suspect people with previous injuries, that's going to be the case because they're going to have potential muscle deficits, whereas other people can just go out and run. Um, so it's just identifying how we can make it safer, and I think that's that's really important. Um, so I think there's there's lots of research around footwear still being done around benefits and safety of, of different types of shoes. So I think that's an important, exciting area. But I think, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff happening, um, and I all I can encourage. I guess listeners to do is probably just try and keep on the pulse a little bit because the great thing about the world we live in now is with social media then a lot of this stuff will get put out as we go along so if you follow a few people interested in running on on Twitter or or get involved in various Facebook pages and groups and things like that you should be able to stay up to date really really well. And who would you recommend people to follow? Let's say they're on Twitter, who would you recommend to follow to kind of keep up with the latest research and and, and recommendations for running. Yeah, sure. So I think Tom Goom does a really good job of bringing a lot of different people's research together. So he has he's the running physio um, based in Brighton, and and he has a, a really I guess unbiased, great approach to to reading the evidence and trying to put it into really understandable language, which I think is is really important. Um, where we're based at Latrobe, we we have a, a Twitter handle there now, which is called at Latrobe um, SEMRC, which is uh, Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre. So I have the pleasure of working with um, people like Jill Cook and Kay Crosley and Peter Bruckner, whole bunch of really good postdocs and and PhD students. And as I said, we're doing some running trials. But we also one of the passions of mine is is around research translation. So we'll be putting together more and more and more resources like podcasts like this, which I think are fantastic, but also videos and and I think infographics is a great way of of looking at stuff so I think certainly try and follow the Latrobe stuff um, would be really good Um, other than that from a a running perspective I guess put my biased hat on I'm an associate editor at British Journal Sports Medicine um, and there's lots of good papers get published through there on various topics related to running and from a social media perspective they do some stuff amazingly well Yes, Um, so we have British Journal Sports Medicine. We obviously have the Twitter, which is which is good, but there's also um, a Facebook page. There's podcasts, which are obviously there's one every week, and there's actually, which most people aren't aware of, there's actually a British Journal Sports Medicine app. Um, so you can actually download a, an app on your phone or tablet, and and that basically just filters through all of the free content that comes from the journal, whether that be podcasts or um, whether that be blogs or whether that be open access research papers. So if you want free information, download the app, and you'll be able to source a lot of that. So that's probably nice. the, the, the key ones to to sort of follow. Yeah, and we'll we'll have all of this up on the show notes for this podcast over at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So yep. we'll have everybody's Twitter handles and links to the app and things like that uh, in the Perfect. show notes. So if you're driving to work and you don't have a pen to write it down, which you shouldn't be, by the way, um, it'll all be in there. So you could just pop over there and, and get the links to everything. Okay, so 
last, what is your Twitter handle? We didn't even talk about that. If people <laughs> want to get in touch with you, how can they do it? Yeah, so I'm at, I'm at Dr. Chris Barton um, is my Twitter handle. So no, Twitter's, Twitter's a fun fun medium, but um, I'm probably putting a little bit of time and energy into that. But a lot of my time and energy is more so going into the, the blog site and, and the Twitter handle and the, the social media we have set up for Latrobe because what I want to do is create a really good community around that. Um, and one of the things I, I think people like using social media just to get their own opinion across and they don't often listen and discuss. It's, no, you get these come on. Butting your head against a brick wall where on would social media. Where you get that idea from? <laughs> there's some great discussions, and there's some where you just the same thing just keeps coming up and up. So, yeah. trying to we're trying to set up a more positive approach to some of this social media stuff, and rather than let's just take down a paper and, and slam it and say this is what's bad about it, and, and it just doesn't apply to clinical practice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We're trying to take the positives out of that, and got some really good PhD students who contribute to the blog, and they're doing research around FAI, around ACL, around plantar heel pain telephemoral pain and they're all contributing summarizing recent literature and how we can take it to clinical practice so for me I guess my passion around social media at the moment is, is trying to help drive that um, and trying to build a good community we have a, a Facebook um, group set up for there so that's probably the where I would spend more of my time is putting stuff on on there um, so that Facebook page is, as I said, Latrobe SEMR. I think it's called Latrobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research. And yeah, the point of that is it shouldn't be just about me there talking. I want to have a community where we can have some good, healthy discussions and, and also translate new important information. Yeah, absolutely. And so before we end, how, what sort of message would you like to leave for the listeners? If you were to kind of sum it up in, I don't know, 30 seconds. Yeah. No, great. If you're treating a runner and they've had an injury for a period, extended period of time and you haven't done a running assessment with them, then do a running assessment. If you can't have, don't have the capacity to do that yourself, then find someone else you can work with to do it um, and start to embrace running retraining and running technique. Now, for some people, it will be short-term changes and they, they may flip back to their, their old technique. It might be enough to reduce their stress. Other people with chronic injuries, you probably need to dive into it further and further. And I think it's a matter of probably just having a go to start with. And we said running with training is more than just step rate, but hey, that's a good starting point. And you can have some really positive impacts with some people. And I think just encourage people to learn more and more about how running technique can evolve. And for physical therapists out there, I think we're perfectly placed to take this on as, as our own because we understand pathology and injury. Um, we should understand exercise rehabilitation and that goes very much hand in hand with, with running technique changes and things like that. So we should be able to come very good at it. Unfortunately, it's not taught in undergrads and master's courses and things like that. So we just have to teach each other. Um, but we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to thank you for a great conversation today on running retraining. So thank you for uh, taking the time out and, and coming on. I appreciate it. No, my pleasure, Karen. Thanks so much for having me on. I really enjoy the opportunity to talk about these things and hopefully the listeners have got something they can take home and, and use. Oh, and, uh, without a doubt, 100%. And, and everyone, thank you for tuning in and listening today. And I wish you all a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.